so. Um, but <clears throat> as we get in, we're back in our study of Ephesians, and as we're getting into that, I want to read to you an article that, or a portion of an article, that was written right on the heels of the Emancipation Proclamation, which if you're not sure what that is, that's, um, you know, American history, 19, or 1863, January 1st, Abraham Lincoln declared that um, all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are henceforward shall be free. Are and henceforward shall be free. So this article, that happened January 1st, 1863. This article's February 1863. So after that had been out for about a month, that proclamation. And we can check all my historical facts with uh, our resident historian here in just a bit. So, But this is from, this is called Rejoicing Over Proclamation. Um, and again, February 1863. The news of the president's great act was received with a thrill throughout the loyal north. Makes sense, right? Among men who love liberty, the rejoicings were universal. Extra newspapers were eagerly brought into, great, into the great cities, and men stopped in the streets to read the decree. The general joy was augmented by the simultaneous intelligence of the victories in Tennessee and Mississippi. So they're not just hearing about it, but they're well aware of these victories, right? Altogether, the new year began with a general burst of enthusiasm. May the, establish, may the year establish liberty and crown it with peace. In New York, several congratulatory meetings have been held. And I'm going to butcher this. But the Abyssinian Baptist, or colored church, gathered a jubilant audience on Friday evening. Several clergymen, among whom were Reverend Carey and Spellman, made addresses. Mr. George T. Downing added some remarks. The meeting closed with cheers for Horace Greeley, uh, Lloyd Garrison, Dr. Cheever, and others, and with the song John Brown. So this article is just recounting all of these people who have just recently heard about the Emancipation Proclamation, okay? On Monday evening, a public celebration in Cooper Institute was crowded to a suffocation, which is, I just think, a really f great way of saying it, there was standing room only, right? And even that was negligible. Mostly by Negroes. Reverend Garnett presided with dignity, reading the proclamation. Having finished the reading of the proclamation, he said, My friends, we must remember that it is God who has brought about this great event. Let us first of all rise to our feet, stand in solemn reverence and thankfulness before him. They rose, the whole assembly. The prayer of the occasion, a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the freedom of three million slaves, was offered by Reverend Raymond. The music Instrumental and vocal was by a colored band and choir under the direction of Mr. T Thomas Hamilton. <clears throat> in Brooklyn, so that was uh, in New York. In Brooklyn, a meeting of the colored people and their friends was held in Bridge Street Church. The congregation sang the old, the old hymn, The Year of Jubilee Has Come. In Rochester, commemorative exercises were held on a Sunday of a religious character. The gathering was large and the enthusiasm was deep and earnest. At Orange, New Jersey, many of the private dwellings were illuminated, including the re residence of Reverend George Deacon, pastor of the Congregational Church. In Boston, on New Year's Day, appropriate exercises were held in anticipation of the proclamation. So they hadn't gotten that far yet, but they were, they were expecting it. A jubilee concert was given in the afternoon at which Josiah Quincy Jr. presided and made a speech, and Ralph Waldo Emerson read, a, read an original poem. 
After vocal and instrumental music, according to the program, Dr. Holmes' army hymn was sung with the following stanza added by the author to make it suitable for the occasion. And this is the stanza. No more its flaming emblems wave to bar from hope the trembling slave. No more its radiant glory shine to blast with woe a child of thine. At Tremont Temple, a meeting was held continuing throughout the day and the evening. <clears throat> when the proclamation came to hand, Charles Slack read it to the audience, who received it with uproarious applause, shouting, tossing up their hats, rapping on the floor with their canes, and singing, Blow ye the trumpet, blow. Then followed shouts of glory to God in the highest and hallelujah. In Worcester, Washburn Hall threw open its doors to a rejoicing audience, and a spirited meeting was held. At Chicago, as our Western Correspondence reports, the colored people celebrated the, the gladsome New Year's Day with appropriate public festivities, feeling sure of the upcoming proclamation before it was issued. And then in South Carolina, <coughs> at Beaufort, a celebration of the Negroes was held in, a live oak, in Live Oak Grove. A barbecue followed, <laughs> consisting of 12 roasted oxen. In addition to the above, Many other demonstrations were made in various northern cities, of which we have no room here to make chronicle, nor have space for mentioning any of the innumerable references to the great event which were made in the churches on the first Sunday of the year. The conviction already prevails that if providence shall now give victory to arms, the entire system of American slavery will be speedily extinct cleansed like a stain from the face of the land. God hasten the hour. This article <clears throat> I'm sharing with you, with you because there's something beautiful in it that I want to illustrate here is that every time the Emancipation Proclamation was read to the people in any given town, something happened. A party broke out. Celebration broke out. Singing broke out. People were reading speeches, writing poems, killing the fattened calf, right? I mean, they were celebrating with food and singing and partying. Because, why? Because the news was so significant that they'd been freed from slavery that they had to celebrate. They could not help but celebrate. And friends, at, as incredible as this event was in American history, something even greater has occurred for us. An even greater freedom, an even greater salvation has been proclaimed to us, and we too must celebrate. For we know this, that when we trust in Christ, our salvation and our inheritance is secured by the Holy Spirit, who is given as a down payment to the praise, not of man, not of a president, but of God. I want to pray, and then we're going to jump right into our passage this morning. <clears throat> Father, as we look into your word, help us draw deeply from it and to celebrate the truth of it. Cause us to understand more deeply that we have been freed from slavery, and not the slavery of men, but slavery to sin and death. And that freedom necessitates celebration. Be with us this morning, we pray. Amen.
I want you to think back with me a little bit to the context of Ephesians. Ephesians, again, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus primarily is made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, people that did not grow up knowing about God, at least the one true God, okay? And so they followed other gods, false gods. In fact, in Ephesus, in that day, one of the ancient wonders, the seven ancient wonders of the world, was right there in the city of Ephesus, the temple to Artemis. Artemis was basically a fertility god. They worshipped her, okay? And in Acts 19, who rolls into the scene? The Apostle Paul. And he starts proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the salvation that is available to all through the cross, through Jesus. And some people actually turned, many people turned from following Artemis to following Jesus, the one true God. And this letter is written to that people who did not grow up with all the, the traditions and culture of following Yahweh, following the one true God. And he's saying to them, you've been included into the family of God. And so everything we read, everything we're going to look at today needs to be filtered through the understanding that these people did not grow up culturally knowing God. And so with that said, I want to go back a couple verses to verse 11. In him, we have, this should be up here um, either on the screen or in your uh, page 633, but in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 11, if it's there, but if not. Um, In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. You all looked at that passage last week. I want to emphasize really just one thing from that passage. In verse 11, Paul is referring to Jewish believers in Jesus. They were the first to trust in Jesus. There was Gentile believers that would eventually trust in Jesus, but the first people to trust in Jesus were the people that did grow up in the culture of Yahweh, the culture of God, his people, surrounded by his people. And so they were the first people to trust in Jesus. And so by the time he gets to verse 13, he says this. In him, you also, Ephesian church, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 13. So Gentiles who had nothing to do with being brought up to know God can hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and then be brought into God's family. And more than that, they can be confident of their shared salvation and their shared inheritance. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was given as a guarantee of that salvation. And so I'm going to show you, there's three things I want you to see in this passage. And here's the first one. Proclamation precedes belief. Proclamation precedes belief. So again, the Jewish people grew up hearing about God, knowing all the traditions that pointed to God's plan of salvation. They knew it. They they knew of it, at least. They had the Bible. The Gentiles had no knowledge of God, had no participation in the traditions or rituals or uh, culture of God's people. And they had no idea God's plan of salvation or that he planned to forgive their sin or redeem them from sin through Jesus as a substitute sacrifice. They had no idea. So it wasn't until Paul steps onto the scene in Ephesus and he proclaims good news to the Ephesians that they heard it for the first time. 
So he had to proclaim it for them to hear it. He tells them the good news, it says, of their salvation. The good news of salvation. Well, save, salvation being saved from something. What, what are the, okay, Paul explained to them that God in his holiness would bring a holy wrath on the crimes of mankind. Paul would have explained that. Not a popular message, but he would have explained it. Right? A terrible wrath that no one could escape unless, unless they trusted in Jesus as a substitute criminal. Do you follow that? Paul explained that although their crimes deserved God's horrific wrath, that wrath can be placed on Jesus as a substitute. Paul would have explained that. And so in this way, Paul proclaimed the salvation that was available to the Ephesians that they would have never known about otherwise. The saving that Jesus did saved us from God's wrath. More than that, he would have said, he would explain to them that their salvation included a freedom from worshiping false gods, like Artemis, from wasting money and giving them to these false, these, these idol makers, these silversmiths, which, by the way, if you go back and read Acts 19, really ticked off the guys who were making the idols and making money off of those idols, right? He would have told them how they were saved from wasting their time, wasting their money, that they were free from having to believe lies about false gods, that they were free from the rule of Satan, all of that is the good news of salvation that we quickly read about in verse 13. But more than that, as they, believe, as they heard it, some believed. The proclamation that Paul made led to Ephesians believing. Proclamation precedes belief. So we must consider that hearing the gospel requires, requires audible proclamation of it. I want you to listen again to Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, or that means declared innocent, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good news. This is really good news. This is what Paul's proclaiming. You call on Jesus, you're going to be saved. Verse 14, though. How then will they call on him? Jew or Gentile, in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching proclamation? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's belief, really clear here, it's belief in the gospel of Jesus that saves us. Not belief plus Jewish traditions, Right? The Gentiles were never going to adopt those. Because the, and, and, and if they did, that would somehow be to the praise of the Gentiles keeping the traditions, right? It's not for us belief plus church attendance on Sunday 
or belief plus being baptized, or belief plus taking communion, or belief plus going to missional community in the middle of the week, or belief plus even reading your Bible on a daily basis. No, he says very clearly, the heart one believes and is justified. But the only way for a person to believe is if they hear the gospel clearly spoken by someone. That's us. We're the speakers. Proclamation precedes belief. No proclamation, no belief. Second thing I want us to see in this passage is the promise precedes possession. The prom- I'm, I'm, I'm going with alliteration. That somebody, like one of my Bible professors back in college, is going to be very proud if he listens to all the alliteration in this sermon, right? But the promise precedes possession. So let me explain that. Paul says that as soon as the Ephesians believed, they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. They were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now Jesus, first of all, promised that the Holy Spirit would come when he went back to heaven. So you see that in Acts 1. In Acts chapter 1, so, so really at the end of uh, Matthew really, and Mark and Luke and John and all that, you, Jesus dies, buried, resurrected, spends about a month or so, 40 days or so on earth, and then he's leaving back to heaven to take his throne. And as he's leaving, his disciples are like, we don't want you to go. And he's like, it's better for me that I do go, or it's better for you that I do go, because I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to promise you somebody to walk with you. I'll be with you always, my Holy Spirit. He's promised in Acts 1. By Acts 2, the apostles were proclaiming the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit in multiple languages that they never learned. So that was a divine um, uh, power that the Spirit of God had and worked through these people, these apostles. And here Paul tells us that not only was the Holy Spirit promised to the church in the passage we're looking at, but that he himself is a promise or a down payment of our coming inheritance. You see? The Holy Spirit was promised, but he is also in himself a promise. He is the promise given to us that precedes our inheritance, the possession of our inheritance. See, we live in this state of already but not yet. We're already saved, right? We've already heard about our salvation, but we've not yet received all of the spiritual blessings that are discussed in in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. He goes back and he talks about all the heavenly spiritual blessings. We haven't gotten them all yet. We've gotten like pieces of them. We've gotten access to some of them, but we haven't got them in their fullness yet because that's going to happen later in heaven. So we're given the Holy Spirit literally as kind of like this down payment is the, is the Greek word. The idea of like almost like a, of an engagement ring or, uh, you know, uh, something that, that just guarantees if you were ever buying a house, you know what earnest money is, right? You put a little bit of money in to say that I'm legit. I'm legitimately interested in this house. And so that's God. He's giving us the Holy Spirit as this down payment of all that is to come. It's a guarantee. When I was <clears throat> in college... Okay. I had this guitar. It was okay. It was fine. It was it was a like a be- it was like just above a beginner level guitar. But I really really wanted a legit guitar, like a real fancy like and and just I I'll just say I wanted a beautiful Martin guitar. If that means something to you, then you know what I'm talking about. If it doesn't, that's okay. But I wanted something that just had the perfect amount of bright tones with those warm deep tones. I mean just and, and there's only a couple of companies that make guitars that just really sound, and so I wanted a Martin. 
and I went to this one store, this one guitar store, probably on a weekly basis, um, just looking and playing and and you know, these guys, they always drove me nuts because they, they just wanted to know, when are you going to buy something? When are you going to buy something? Like, when I find the perfect one. And so they would always check on me, all these sales guys. But I would just play for hours, you know? And they're just getting annoyed with me. And then finally, this one guitar showed up. And it wasn't a stock guitar. It wasn't your typical, like, you know, they had, a, you know, maybe a series of 10 different guitars that Martin made. This was, like, some special guitar that they only made a few hundred of. And I was like, ooh, I was intrigued. And so I picked it up, and I started playing it. I'm like, this is the one. This is the guitar I want. And then I did what? Check the price. It was out of my league. But I wanted it. And so I was like, how do I do this? I started talking to those salesmen that had been just kind of obnoxious prior. I'm like, what do I do? He goes, well, you can buy it on layaway. I'm like, tell me about layaway. What's, what's layaway? And they're like, well, you put in... You put in some money, we'll hold it for you, and then when you get us the rest of the money, we'll, we'll give it to you. And I'm like, in, all in. And so I worked my butt off for the next few months. I, I'd give them 100 bucks here, 200 bucks there, boom, 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 until you don't need to know what the final price was, but I got this guitar, and I loved this guitar. And it was just, what did I do? I, I showed them with that first payment, that first installment, that I was legitimate that the rest of that money was coming. That first payment indicated something to them, that the rest was coming. The Holy Spirit for us is our down payment of much more to come, much more to come. He guarantees all the blessings that are to come. John MacArthur, pastor, author, he says this, the Ephesians, this should be here, are assured and guaranteed with an absolute certainty that only God could provide. The Holy Spirit is the church's irrevocable pledge, her divine engagement ring, as it were, that as Christ's, she will never be neglected or forsaken. The Spirit is that for the church. The Ephesians' belief in the gospel saved them. The Holy Spirit was their guarantee of what was to come ultimately. And this should all point us to see, my third point here is this, that praise is the response of God's people. That praise is the response of God's people. Three times in this passage so far, Paul says that God is to be praised. Three times he says it. We've gone up to verse 14. And then three times, just in that very short run-on sentence, Paul has said, God is to be praised. First in verse 6, for his grace. He's to be praised for his grace. Uh, Second, in verse 12, for the hope that we have in Christ, for our hope. And then now in verse 14, for securing our inheritance. Three times, for his grace, for our hope in Christ, and for securing our inheritance. For those reasons, we praise God. Have you you ever talked to someone who um, maybe just purchased something, and they just are like, this is the life-changing purchase? They're like, this is, I needed this item now because it completes me. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the thing that, whatever it was, like a house with a second bathroom was probably something I talked about for the longest time. Because when you go from one bathroom to two bathrooms, it makes a significant life-changing difference. Not quite to the level of the gospel, but it is significant. And if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you have a wife that wakes up at the same time as you, you know what I'm talking about. But people do this, right? They talk about 
these things. Even worse yet is if you are interacting with somebody who's selling an item that they're telling you and trying to convince you that it's life-changing, right? What's going on there? They trust that they have in this item, in this object, whatever it be, it directs their praise. They're so excited about it but that in a way they're praising the item that they're trusting in, right? Their trust directs their praise. Or, or, or in another, another take on this, somebody who's bragging, somebody who's just like all full of themselves, the big head, you know, maybe it's because of their skills. You see this with athletes. Maybe it's because of their intellect or their job or their money or whatever. What is that doing? You can look at their praising. You can look at what they're celebrating, and you can say that points back to what they trust, right? We can see that what someone trusts affects how they praise, and we can look at what somebody's praising, and we can go back and see what they're trusting in. And then conversely, you can see when someone's depressed or they're literally without hope or direction in life. Maybe they're going through a loss, a major loss of some kind, or a divorce or an illness, and they've gotten to that place of extreme despair. And no doubt, right, any of those things would be incredibly sad or painful for any of us. There's no way around that. But if those things lead to a lack of praise for God, they've now stopped praising God. They have ceased praise. Doesn't that point to a lack of trust in him? Our tr what we trust in directly correlates to what we praise. At the minimum, we would have to say, when we get to that place of despair, we've lost sight of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read this to you. Verse 16. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction doesn't always feel light and momentary, but that's how he phrases it in light of eternity. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's saying, we look ahead to eternity. The spiritual blessings in verse 3. You, and go back and read this passage today. Verses 3 to 14. It's one long sentence of praise and, and glorious glory to God for what he's given to us. Try to list them out. Every spiritual blessing that we've been promised, we've got it in the form of a down payment via the Holy Spirit. Why? Because someone proclaimed the good news to us at some point in our life. We heard it, and it, we learned about our salvation, our saving from sin, death, despair, the rule of Satan. And we learned about our inheritance of what is to come, and our guarantee of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, we praise God's name, even in the midst of the dark seasons of or extraordinary blessings where we're tempted to not praise God because we trust in the things in front of us. So with all that said, I want to give you six practical things to apply this passage. And so 
if you're new, you don't maybe journal or something. I, you've got a note card there in front of you. You can write them down if you like. Um, put them on your iPhone, do whatever. But these, I think, as I've processed this passage, these are six things that I think will help us apply today's passage. Because as James says, we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So, first thing. We should remember what we've been saved from and praise God with thankfulness. We should remember what we've been saved from and praise God with thankfulness. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Which um, I'm not sure if is on the screen. It is. It is not. Uh, Colossians 1. Let me, let me pull it up here. That was probably my fault. Sorry about that, guys. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Listen to these words. These are, these are some of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. And if you, d- you don't find it, just listen, because let this encourage you. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, church, to in- the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen to this, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear what that is? He's transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a jailbreak, folks. That's a jailbreak. He's freed us from one tyrannical leader, the devil, and put us in the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you get that? The king takes care of his people. The king cares for his subjects. The tyrannical uh, leader just uses them. And he's freed us from that and placed us in God's kingdom, in his family. So we need to remember what we've been saved from so we can praise God with thankfulness. We have been saved from the rule of Satan. Second thing, we should consider what we are saved to. So first, remember what you've been saved from and consider what you've been saved to and praise God. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the past, where we've been for the last couple of months, we've been saved to some things. We've been saved to a life of holiness and blamelessness. Do you realize that? Anybody in here have like the spiritual gift of seeing all the flaws in the other people around them? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Me too. But when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see all the flaws. He doesn't see all the problems and all the mistakes anymore. And it's not because you're really that great of a person. No, you are jacked up. You're born in sin just like I am. However, for the person that trusts in Christ, his blood washes those things away. And so he sees us through his, the eyes of the blood of his son. He sees us as holy and blameless, and we should look to that and think that's worthy of praising our God, that he would be willing to look at us as holy and blameless. Second, he sees us as adopted children of his, as adopted sons and daughters. Have you ever known anyone who's been adopted? Anyone ever known, like, someone firsthand? Yeah, okay. When you see that person understand their backstory 
And then they realize, oh my gosh, where would I be if you hadn't adopted me? I've been saved to a family that loves me. I've been brought into a family. I've been adopted as a son or a daughter into a family that cares for me. That's what we have. We have to think about that. We have to consider that. And again, praise God. And, and again, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 talks about how we've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We have a future inheritance to hope in. All of those things, we should consider them. Not briefly, deeply. And praise God. So we need to remember what we've been saved from. We need to consider what we've been saved to. We should thirdly praise God with a continued hope, knowing that our struggle with sin and suffering will one day be no more. Okay, that's, that's a little bit lengthy, but let me explain that one again. We should praise God with a continued hope, knowing that our struggle with sin and suffering will one day be no more. Let me read to you from Revelations 21. verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. He will dwell with them. He, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We have a continued hope that one day we're not going to suffer anymore. Have any, has anyone lost someone in the last year? Has anyone experienced personal suffering physically in the last year? Has anyone battled in the last year against a sin that you just feel like won't die? All of us should be raising our hands, right? God's going to wipe away that struggle, and he's going to wipe away that suffering. And so we hope now, we need continued hope now that that is still true fourth fourth application we should praise god by having assurance of our salvation we should praise god by having assurance of salvation when doubts come so often when we sin in some way we doubt our salvation that, that i mean that's true Okay, everyone struggles at some point with doubts about their salvation. Because the thought process goes like this. If I screwed up again, how, come, how could I possibly really be saved? I want you to see something that happens in that thought process. In the moment that we do that, in the moment that we screw up and then doubt our salvation, we are now in that moment believing in something called works salvation, not in grace. Grace says we do deserve punishment for our sin, but God graciously forgives us if we trust in him. Work says I have to do something to earn my salvation, to earn God's favor. So therefore, if I screw up, I'm not earning it right now. 
wait a minute, if you screw up continually in this life, after you first believed, what did you think was going to happen? You still live in a fallen world, right? You still live in a world of suffering and pain. You still have the flesh to battle against, the sin in you to battle against, right? So of course you're still going to screw up. Of course I'm still going to make mistakes and fail and even at times rebel against God. So that continued falling, that continued failure doesn't somehow unsave you. It just shows you again you still need grace. You see? Works don't save us, so they can't lose our salvation. You see? Rather, God's word says that when we believe the gospel of Jesus, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the phrase, sealed. We can't undo what God has sealed, what he has secured. You get the idea of a seal, right? And I'm not talking about like your 99-cent envelope you pick up at Walmart that you lick that thing, right? No, in that day, the seal that they're talking about was, this was like a decree from a, from a leader, from a king, and they would take like wax, and they would, you know, seal that document, and then they would take an emblem or a ring, a lot of times it was a ring, and they would press it into the wax, and that could not be broken by just anyone, right? But it symbolized this was from the person who holds that ring or that symbol or that singlet or whatever. God has sealed the document. God has sealed us. We can't unseal what he has sealed, you see? So we must walk in assurance of our salvation. Now let me, let me just tangent. The passage is not about this, but I want to tangent for a minute. This does not mean that there is no time to question Salvation does not mean that. I want you to realize this passage was written to a people who would have been tempted at times to believe they weren't really a part of the family of God because they weren't brought up in the family of God, right? Gentiles. But in 1 John, later in our Bibles, we are given warnings to test our faith. So one of the key tests, and I'm going to read you just a few of them, but one of the key tests... Of, as to whether we're legitimately followers, legitimately God's children, is, is, let me read a few of them to you, is do we love other Christians? You cannot love God but hate your brother, First John says. Secondly, do you have an awareness of your sin? You, if you're just walking around never feeling conviction of your sin, never repenting of sin, that's, that's concerning. Do you fight against your sin? Or are you just content with it? Do you love God? Do you actually love God? Do you seek to follow him? That's what corresponds with loving God. And then do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life from Galatians 5? Now I want you to be very, very clear. These tests are not requirements for salvation. If they were requirements then we would believe in a works-based salvation, a having to earn our salvation, earn God's favor. But they are tests that indicate that God's grace has taken hold of our hearts. So a test and a work are different. Or I should say a test and a requirement are different. We do look to the life, the works of our lives, and say they represent something, they imply something, they indicate something about what's going on underneath the hood, right? You hear a rattle... 
you know something, you, you, is something wrong under the hood, right? But if you see beautiful fruit of the Spirit, that would tend to indicate what's under the hood or at the root of the tree is good. I'm mixing metaphors here, cars and trees and stuff, sorry. But you get what I'm saying. A test and a requirement are different. And the test is valuable, but it is not a requirement. It indicates what is real. The Spirit works in us to convict us of our sin. And if we're not feeling conviction over our sin, and it's not leading us to confess and seek forgiveness and repent from our sin, then we could read today's passage from Ephesians as assurance of salvation when we shouldn't. This passage, today's passage, is for the believer who believes the good news of Jesus, but may struggle at times to think they're not accepted into God's family for whatever reason. Fifthly, remember there's six, so we only got two left here. Fifthly, we should proclaim Jesus. If proclamation precedes belief, then we should proclaim the gospel of Jesus to people. It's only in him that people have forgiveness or hope or new life. And so if we're not proclaiming it, those we care about will never believe it. Your children will never believe it if you never proclaim it. Your neighbors will never believe it if you never proclaim it. It's not a guarantee that they'll believe it, but it is certainly a guarantee if you don't. If they never hear it, they can never believe it. And they can never hear it if we don't proclaim it. So that's a very obvious application. We need to be a people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And the last application is we must be ready to be sent. Every week, we must be ready to be sent to proclaim the gospel to new places, right? To hard places like Ephesus. Do you realize, again, go back and read Acts 19. Paul goes into Ephesus to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. It's a new place, it's a hard place. And the people riot. They riot. People who've been selling little statues of Artemis to all these Ephesian people are ticked. They are ticked off at Paul for proclaiming a message of, of salvation and hope in Jesus because if you have Jesus, you don't need Artemis. And if you don't have Artemis, then they're not buying my statues. And if you're not buying my statues, I'm not making my buck. That's what's going on here. So there are hard places we are called to proclaim the gospel. And the hardness of the place does not indicate we shouldn't go there. It indicates there's a need to go there. We need to be sent every week to new places, hard places, same places. Listen to this quote from John Piper. He's run a, written a ton of books on um, spirituality, Christianity, missions, all sorts of things. He was a pastor for 30, 40 years. And he writes this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. It's what we do, but it's not the ultimate goal. He says worship is the ultimate goal. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. Let me read that again. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the ultimate. We go new places, hard places, 
with the gospel, proclaiming it. Why? Because there are people who aren't worshiping Jesus. They don't know about their salvation, of what they've been saved from. They don't know what they can be saved to. And so we must go to them. We go on mission. We call you to go on mission every week. Why? Why do I hear that same message? Why is he always talking about that? Because worship of God does not exist in places, in people's hearts. And when we stop worshiping, when there are moments when we get so self-absorbed and we have now stopped worshiping God and we start to go back to the old self, we need to be reminded of the Gospels. We need to have people in our life who will proclaim the Gospel message to us again. So worship continues in our life again. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. We go because we want to see more people saved and worshiping the Savior. Let's pray. God, in this passage, we see you sending your son, saving us, 